90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm trying not to look at the calendar and realize how close we are to classes starting. Yeah, and it's abstract deadline season. Oh, gosh, <laughs> it is. Uh, I haven't even... Uh, eh, I got a whole nother week or something like that, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, mental note, I got to make some notes about this abstract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... um. It's busy, but not, yeah. I've been uh, remodeling my office at work. That's really what I've been busy with. Oh, fun. Uh-huh, yeah. After you were busy fixing all my crap in the lab. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, two and a half days, 30 hours in the PMAG room, <laughs> putting in hardware and software. You know, that room is enough to drive you crazy, period. So, yeah, I imagine you were extremely glad to leave Oklahoma on Sunday night. You know, I definitely could hear the liquid helium pump on the plane, just goonch, So, It's like a womb. It's not even like a room. So if, if you haven't been in a cryogenic magnetometer lab, which I'm guessing most people listening <laughs> haven't, uh, so it's a shielded room. So they're really expensive to make because you have to cancel out Earth's magnetic field, right? So it's kind of small, and it's chock full of equipment, and there's a heater in there an oven and so when you got the oven going and you've got this liquid helium being pumped through and it's this nice just like john said very heartbeat like sound yeah it just puts you straight back to fetal (laughs) fetal aged feelings (laughs) so yeah but you didn't have any time to sleep because you were too busy coding and playing with new um hardware the whole weekend it's true, you know, in reverse engineering, some of the crazy early <laughs> 90s design decisions that were made in this piece of equipment. <laughs> I'm super impressed, I will say. I'm really impressed. It's nothing we could have done. So if anyone listening is in the market, John will make you a pretty cool setup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to get him to just go out and make magnetometers, but there's probably only about 10 people that want to buy one. So he, you'd need well, you know, to... if you're interested, there is the, the actual cryogenic magnetometer part, no pump or anything, but on eBay right now. Gosh, that's so weird. <laughs> you can literally get anything on eBay. I was looking for a set of the degaussing coils because I wanted a spare set to, to experiment <gasps> to with and take apart with... oh, but man. uh but nobody's got any on ebay now oh that's a bummer it's uh... a safe search though <laughs> god that's hilarious i can't wait till you get that notification <laughs> it'll probably be ours when i rip them out and just get angry right <laughs> <laughs> oh that's pretty good yeah so um again we were we were together all weekend but actually we put together or we're gonna put together a show we're not gonna skip a week this time like last time we were together yeah, so in the process of putting your software and hardware together last weekend, uh, we had to do some coordinate rotations because you're measuring the magnetic field of a rock core with reference to the you know, the arbitrary coordinate system of the magnetometers, and you have to rotate it to core uh, coordinates, and then you have to rotate that to geographic coordinates. Yeah. And then sometimes you rotate that to in situ coordinates, <laughs> taking into account the strike and dip of the bed. Uh, and when it came to figuring out how to do that, we said, Hey, how do you guys do this? And you said, well, the software does it. (laughs) Yeah. 
And as it turns out, it actually goes back to one of our old friends, the stereo net. <laughs> um, it was not surprising when you said that's what we're going to talk about this week. Although I will say I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so I'm are... curious, why, why the avoidance of stereo nets? I don't know, man. It's so much. So, okay, so I, I seriously felt the need i'm glad you gave me the heads up because clearly i don't check the notes but you said you need to study and i actually <laughs> studied for this because i i think that there's in stereo nets there's a lot there's a lot of thinking that goes into a stereo net and until you're totally good with that you can't just like pick it up and be like oh yeah this is this you know you have to put yourself into this 3d mind space that is the thing that geologists and meteorologists, to a certain extent too, especially radar meteorologists, need to learn how to do. And for a lot of people, it's not intuitive. I think I'm pretty good at it, so I actually I don't I don't mind the stereo nets. That's fine. But it's hard to describe. <laughs> it's hard to describe. Yeah. And I I have a little bit of a rant in here about how people should know more linear algebra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I agree. It's been a long time for me for linear algebra. Um, this is the very like math versus visual thing, right? Uh, sort of. So first of all, let's talk about what the heck is a stereo net. And my favorite way to talk about stereo nets to somebody that's never heard of them before is think of it like a 3D protractor. Do you think a lot of people that have never heard of a stereo net use a protractor on a regular basis? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, there's protractors are a pretty common tool. And if you sort of think of a couple of them, you know, one hanging down at 90 degrees from the other, that's, uh, that's sort of what a stereo net is. Actually, yeah, that's and if you spun them, they would exactly be a stereo net. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I've always wondered why. So it's a it's a 2D projection of a 3D thing. Right. That's what we're really looking at. That's what a stereo net is. So you're representing this 3D thing, whether it's a line, a vector, a plane, on this 2D piece of paper. Right. And so with a protractor, you would have, you know, you're measuring the angle between two lines or angle between two planes, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, if they're perpendicular to the protractor. Yes. But where that falls down is in geology, where everything is three-dimensional. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's nothing easy. No. <laughs> so you've got, uh, you know, some some formation that's dipping and striking at a certain angle and another formation over the top of it that's dipping and striking at a different angle. What is the intersection of those two formations in three-dimensional space? What does that look like? You can answer that. Yes, and you can do it with math, or you can do it with stereo nets, right? True. Uh, <laughs> so the, the first thing to know about stereo nets is that there are two different ones, uh, or two different types, rather. Uh, there's an upper and a lower hemisphere projection. <laughs> and this is where PMAG uses both, where it gets real weird. <laughs> yeah, and so mineralogists and some paleomagicians uh, paleo use right. upper hemisphere projections. So if you if you had a perfect sphere, like a basketball, and you cut it in half, the top would be the upper hemisphere. The bottom, with the flat side facing up to you, would be lower. Mm -hmm. You can use either and do the same calculation. 
But yes. since we're normally looking down onto planes in structural geology, mm-hmm. like when you're in the field, it's easier to use a lower hemisphere projection. Right. Um, so if you imagine that basketball and that line, say you just got a line, because that's an easy one, right? Piercing right. that basketball at an angle where it pierces in the upper and lower is going to be different. And so that's as simple as it is. So where it pierces in the upper, you're using that for upper hemisphere. Where it pierces in the lower, lower hemisphere. But just like John said, you can get both of those data points from either one of these. Right. And the stereo net, I would almost call it a nomogram. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it definitely is. I mean, I mean... You can do calculations on it, sort of. Yes. Yes, yes, you can. And in PMAG labs, you definitely do by hand. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, you, you were doing them all by hand this weekend, too, when you're trying to figure this stuff out. So, But not with a stereo net. With yeah, math. that's that's true. <laughs> you were using math. You could have had a stereo net. <laughs> it's pretty hard to program a computer to, you know, put a piece of tracing paper on. But we'll get there. Um, you could have checked your math with it. So a... A little bit of terminology on stereo nets. When you're looking at one of these, and I highly encourage you to go look up one, there are a few different subtleties in terms of equal area stereo nets and so on that we're not going to get to right now. Yeah. Um, but you have a North Pole, an equator, and a South Pole, just like you would on looking at a global map projection, right? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And same thing, North Pole's usually up, so at the top of the page, South Pole's down equator in the middle and the equator and then the north south pole line are the only two straight lines on the stereo net well on the equal area stereo net which is what i want to talk about (laughs) yes yeah that's the one that we'll we'll use so then you have the what would be lines of longitude on a a map projection Mm -hmm. are called great circles on a stereo net right and then you've got lines of latitude which are small circles Yes, and one of those are easier to understand than the other. Mm-hmm. Great circles, sure. easy. Small circles, not easy. Right. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we were on the same page. It would have been great if we had understood the opposite ones, and then we could adequately explain those. But <laughs> It's true. Uh, <laughs> so the, the great circles represent dip angle mm-hmm. of a plane. So the line in the center, the line that directly connects the north and south pole, would be 90 degrees dip or vertical plane. And the line around the outside of the globe would be zero degrees dip or horizontal plane. Right, which you can imagine with this half of a basketball, right? If you have a plane, which is any rock surface, that's how we describe them, straight up and down, it's going to cut that basketball straight through that north-south line. So there you go, vertically dipping. And then, of course, so as you go around the outside, that's the strike or the azimuth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Why'd you leave that one for me to explain? I'm not doing this. This was your idea. <laughs> so <laughs> what I what I love about this is it seems weird that as you go towards the outside, your dip gets more shallow. I it, Yes, it takes a good deal of familiarity for looking at those things to become second nature for understanding that. But if you really think about it, if you had a perfectly horizontal plane, then it would be the plane that cut your basketball in half right, it in the first place. It doesn't intersect it at all, yeah. And it has no strike, so it, you would draw it as outlining the circumference of the stereo net. 
all the strikes. Exactly, because the strike, if you'll remember from way back when, when we talked about this, of a rock is the intersection of a horizontal plane with this dipping surface that is the rock. And so if your horizontal plane is horizontal and your rock is horizontal, they don't intersect. No strike. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. But then if you do have a dip and they do intersect, you get this azimuthal number, because we're not going to use quadrants, even though we can. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> nobody likes that, apparently. I like it. Nobody else likes it. And so now you can read that on the stereo net. Oh, using these small circle business, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the small circles are... It- if you have any familiarity, I know we have some listeners that listen to the orbital mechanics as well and think about orbits yeah. a lot. Uh, so this will be second nature for you. But um, <laughs> we've got a, a conical surface that its tip is at the center of the hemisphere. That's what's represented by small circles. Yeah. See, this one is so much less intuitive. So you, you can sort of think of it as if you had cones projecting out. This is the slice through those. Yeah. <laughs> and that cone could be at any dip or strike, which makes it a little strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's real weird. Yes. <laughs> because once you have this weird dipping plane, it's actually not trivial to figure out both your strike and dip, depending on how your stereo net is oriented correct yes <laughs> and this is where tracing paper comes in <laughs> yeah and if you tried to do this just with pure trig you drive yourself mad because i tried it <laughs> um it's doable but really you know rotation matrices are around for a reason <laughs> yeah ex- exactly or tracing paper in a brad <laughs> oh killing me so uh, imagine a a common let's do a very basic geologic plot here okay Uh, we're going to plot a plane on the stereo net all right which is real common we do that all the time in structural geology right so you've got the strike and dip of some rock bed yep the first thing you do is you put a piece of tracing paper (laughs) (laughs) it's so true on top of a stereo net yeah. Uh huh. So, when I did this in structure, I think I glued mine to a piece of cardboard, my stereo net. Yep. Yep. That's uh, ours. Was well, we had a um, a Manila folder, so basically a, a piece of card stock, and right. then the stereo net taped on it, and then you put a brad through tracing paper, the stereo net, and the card stock, and so now you've got this rotatable tracing paper on top, which will become clear why you need that. <laughs> Yes, and okay. you have to, you know, make sure you put tape over the center of the tracing paper where the brad goes through so it doesn't tear and screw yeah. up your calculation. Yeah, and... exactly, and then you got to redo it again. Tracing paper on top of the tracing paper is never fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you take your tracing paper, and I would always make a mark at north As on the tracing should. paper. <laughs> yes. Uh, I know some people mark it at like 90 or something. That seems strange, but okay, it works. <laughs> As long as you, as long as you remember what your convention is, it's okay. Exactly. That's my teacher voice. Okay, go ahead. So (laughs) then you make a mark along the outer ring of the stereo net on your tracing paper, whatever the strike of your bed is. Okay. So now you're talking about the small circles. So if you have, 
a bed that's striking at 30 degrees east of north. I know I just said that we should do azimuths. That's still 30 degrees. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now you're going to count these small circles where 90 is at the top, right? And the equator is zero. And you're going to go to the east of north and go, okay, there's 90, 80, blah, blah, blah. Right? Uh, well, oh, so no, I'm sorry. Top, right? Yeah. Zero's at the top. Yeah. I totally See, it's already that confusing. It is. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I even I have my pencil actually right now on a stereo net and that was exactly when I started to count I was like this is not right at all. It's so, just like a compass. <laughs> so zeros at the top and you would count three small circles right, or so, 30 degrees out. So 1 2 3 and then you just make a tick mark right there at that 30 degree mark. And then instead of using a rotation matrix, you <laughs> rotate the tracing paper until that mark is now at 0 degrees. It's a manual rotation matrix. Uh, so (laughs) (laughs) the links that we will go to to not have to do math (laughs) it's amazing it really is amazing (laughs) this entire process can be replaced with 10 lines of python Uh, (laughs) but you have to learn the basics first (laughs) so okay so now you got your 30 right there aligned at the north part of your stereo net because now you're looking to find the dip which is the great circle right and so now here's where zero degrees is the outside 90 degrees is yep, the center there you, go. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you make a mark at the equator for your dip uh-huh. so let's say it's dipping 40 degrees okay and you mark it if it's dipping east you mark it on the east side of the uh the north south meridian uh-huh. if it's dipping west you mark it on the west side and then you trace the great circle from pole to pole. Great. So you got that. So now you've got that line. So now you get to rotate it back, right? Right. So now you put your north mark back at north. Uh And the whole reason we had to do that rotation is because you don't have great circles marked at every different azimuth or small circle. You just have them marked from, from north to south. Right. Exactly. So now you rotate it. And let's say, I think you said that our bed was striking at 30 degrees, and I said it's dipping at something like 40. 40, uh-huh. So now you would have an arc that runs from the northeast to the southwest, bulging towards the southeast on your great circle. Right, correct. Yep. That arc represents the plane. Yes. So if you imagine a plane at that strike and dip cutting through the basketball, and then you're looking at this lower hemisphere, where the edge of that plane intersects the outside of the basketball, if you were to put a string there and hold a string where the top center of the basketball used to be, where that string crosses the horizontal plane that we cut the basketball on is where the pencil marks are. Correct. It's a projection from where the plane intersects the ball to the zenith of the sphere. Correct. So you've got Which, a lot of information there. <laughs> it's hard to to visualize. And as we're going through this, everybody should go into the show notes and pull up this link to Visible Geology by Rowan Cockett. And they have a stereo net that you can double click to put a plane on and then rotate it in 3D and see this. <laughs> That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have her, I have her little mark on there. Um yeah, because I think a lot of people don't 
They stop thinking once you, like, pierce the basketball, but you have to think about the trace of the plane on the outside as well. And I think that's maybe where people get, well, in my opinion, that's where students sort of get lost. Because now you've had to do a couple of different 3D things in your head, and so you're like, why is this plane that's straight curvy on here? But you just have to think, you know, 3D bowl, 2D projection. Right. And so I have this plane plotted in uh, visible geology right now. And I'm looking at it. Yes, this this makes good sense. Mm-hmm. So now let's plot another plane. Okay. So if we go through the same process, and let's say that we're, you know, striking northwest now and dipping at forty for fun. <laughs> so fun. now you would have something that's kind of a mirrored image, right? Right. Yeah. So you got these curvy x thing (laughs) yeah you got this curvy x yep Mm -hmm. so in three-dimensional space those two planes are intersecting in some orientation right right and we should be able to tell this yeah because the two curves meet at one point yeah and Uh since we're doing dimensionality reduction planes are lines and lines in 3d are points points. on a stereo net (laughs) If you've ever read Flatland, this is what this reminds me of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Completely. Planes are lines. Lines are points. Okay. So now by finding the point of that intersection, you can read off what the orientation of the line that represents the intersection of these two planes is. Mm-hmm. It's yep. quite handy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can do all kinds of stuff too, like, Poles to planes, and we do a lot of that in PMAG. That's that's intense too. Yeah, so I'm curious what your viewpoint on this is. So we can plot planes as these arcs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see people plot planes as the poles. Yeah. Which is if you take a a vector or a line that's normal or 90 degrees to that plane, and project it up, then you plot that dot where it pierces your your great circle cut plane. Mm-hmm. So do you like plotting planes as lines or dots? Um, You know, I will say that I feel like in PMAG, we do a lot of poles to planes more because you can put a lot of them on there. So I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. I, I agree. So when you're just plotting, like you, you take a bunch of strike and dips in the field on a system that's folded. Mm-hmm. I think plotting the poles is nice because then you can contour the pole density and do some statistics on here to get what the best fit strike and dip or plunge for these folds are. Right. Okay. Yeah. But if you're trying to do like, I have two planes and I want to find the intersection of them, I like it done as arcs because otherwise it gets confusing as to whether a dot is a pole or a linear intersection. Or a a line. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep, I understand that. So, yeah, we do lots of dots. And plotting alineation is really sort of a similar procedure, right? So you you make a, you put your thing where your north marks it north, you mark the azimuth, but then you rotate the tracing paper 
until the mark is aligned with the equator mm-hmm. instead of north. Mm-hmm. And then you count your your plunge of the line and then you put your dot and then you rotate it back. Yeah. <sighs> so so then how do you plot a pole if you have if you already plotted your your great circle uh line representing a plane, how would you plot a pole? Oh well, I just do the math. <laughs> so <laughs> You can <laughs> rotate back to where your your line matches a great circle arc on the plot. Right. And then you go. And then you add 90, 90 degrees. to that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which I thought it was hilarious when I was reading a lab manual on this. They were like, a neat trick is that you can start at the center of the plot and just count the dip because this automatically adds 90. <laughs> it's like, yes, but that shouldn't be a trick. <laughs> it shouldn't be. <laughs> That's amazing. That's an even further step to not have to math. Yes. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> Heaven forbid we have to do some addition or subtraction. And it, it is a little confusing when you're just looking at plots of poles because then the poles that are on the west side of the plot are representing planes that are dipping the other way. Yeah, see, there's where my confusion came in because I use poles to planes. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, that's my excuse. <laughs> so it can be a little confusing to use these, but I'm very interested in... I I cannot think of a better way to plot these kind of data. So I, I completely see their use for yes, that. Yes. I, yes, they're not going to go away. Like, <laughs> this is and, what I mean, we th- do. There, there are even Python packages to plot these. Uh I like them for that. Mm-hmm. I don't like that people use these as calculators. I th- I like them for, I mean, for visualization, obviously. Like, I think they're great, but I think that we need to work through the math and do the visualization at the same time. I don't think one should come before the other. I think they should go alongside each other. I will grant you that. But in a research application, when you go, you know, when students leave, they get a job somewhere. If it comes down to they need to do some coordinate rotation and they pull out a piece of tracing paper, that's not going to look very good. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's what their old boss is going to want to see. What are you talking <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> see, and I mean, PMAG, I mean, all our statistics are run off of stereo notes. It's true. It's, a lot of your statistics are based on the fact that they are an equal area projection. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can do statistics on density based on just counting how many points are in each little box that are made by great and small circles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's how we do it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so I I see their utility. I don't necessarily like that they're used as calculators. I think we should learn the math. Fine. <laughs> The, the other interesting bit is, so you, you can do what's called an Euler pole rotation on these. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not spelled how you think it is. Yeah, so it's E-U-L-E-R, like the mathematician. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. And I'm very... So you can think of this as rotating a vector about a vector. Yes. So you're not rotating a three-dimensional coordinate system like you would on... You know, you've got an accelerometer on a spacecraft or 
on a vehicle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. But you have, in the case of your lab, you have a magnetic vector that needs to be rotated about a vector representing orientation of something in space. Correct. I mean, and this is all PMAG is, is Euler poles, because if you're talking about how continents move, which is what we use PMAG for, right? Like each thing has a pole and then you're rotating about Earth's pole today to try to get the maps that we use to display how continents move. Right. And I, I was, so I was working in your lab this last weekend with another person who's got a uh, more computer science-y met background. Mm-hmm. And we were laughing because if you Google Euler pole, the only thing you find is like an HTML two page from various geodynamics labs talking about geology and plate movement. Yep. But this is a common operation. It is the basis of many, many, many things in computer graphics. In fact, to do the math that's in your software, we were using computer graphics stuff from a GUI language. Really? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, this is the only... This is the only application, well, clearly, that I know of because I don't do computer stuff. So <laughs> that's pretty funny. Hmm. Yeah, but you know, you've got a 3D scene in a room. Yeah. Uh, and so for AR, VR, whatever, and you're doing you know, ray tracing because you're bouncing lights off things and the camera's yeah. moving around as your person. It's all rotations. Yeah, you're exactly right. That is really cool. I just... And you don't see computer graphics people using stereo nets, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they're checking their math with them you don't know <laughs> i'm prepared for the hate mail on this one <laughs> but computer people don't need to know math either because they just you know figure out this program that does it for them right <laughs> there's gonna be some hate mail on that one <laughs> or write the program yeah yeah <laughs> so i i like i said i do agree that there is utility to these and that they are great visualization tools once you learn how to read them yes yeah i uh, think they're great teaching tools I really do. Like, I forget, we all forget, people who have done geology for a long time, forget how hard it is to think in 3D if you weren't good at it to begin with. So I think they could be great teaching tools. But you don't think they are, the way they're used? So much of it is mechanical. You, you make the mark here, you rotate the tracing paper, you follow this line, you rotate back, and it means nothing. Well... You can lead a horse to water, and then you can drown him, I guess. Yeah. I mean, some of that's lack of student effort sometimes. Yes. I also think some of it is taught slightly mechanically. I think a lot of it is, yeah, lack of uh, caring by either TAs or professors in trying to really bring the students along on the 3D usage of a stereo net and what it physically represents i will agree i mean i remember learning stereo nets and thinking what and <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where you know you've got to not look at facebook not look at twitter oh yeah sit down in the library with some stereo nets some paper your laptop and spend yeah. like an hour with it. Yeah, you got to put the time in, which is what I was complaining about. Because while I use stereo nets every day that I look at PMAG data, you know, 
you get lazy about it. Like I can rattle off any coordinate you want, but to actually stop to go back and think of how you're going to explain this to someone who doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. That even took time just to go back and say, okay, I know what this means, but how do you explain it to someone who's never seen it? Because in yes. PMAG, we have to represent both hemispheres on one stereo net. <laughs> Yeah, that's just insane. <laughs> because we're talking about magnetic vectors, and yeah, they they have different inclinations. You either have an up or down inclination, and so how those vectors intersect your stereo net, you need to know whether it's up or down, because that has a lot to do with the magnetic, well, that is the magnetic polarity, so yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Open and close boxes. 90 degrees apart that's what we do <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> and i i will link in the show notes there is a pretty handy uh workbook from the folks at leeds yes yeah this is real good um it, it goes through the use of stereo notes and it's got exercises and it's great the graphics are real good in this too like right. I, re I really like um their representations on here and it's got a whole bunch of youtube links in it which are fantastic so. and and i actually found in the process of looking for things on stereo nets rowan who did visible geology that i mentioned earlier i found out wrote a, a blog post in 2013 called on teaching the stereo net <laughs> and it echoed many of the things that i was <laughs> was thinking in this in in our discussion here and he's got a lot of graphics, many of which are made with visible geology. That's awesome. Uh, so I think it's also worth looking at because he's got some some more cross-section-y type things with planes going through them and saying, okay, now let's look at that on a stereo net. So more from geologic cross-section to stereo net, which is hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and this is something, if you're going to be a geologist in anything, you need to understand how these work. Yes. Because as John said, yeah, you can math it out and you should be able to math it out, but you're definitely going to see these and you're going to use them all the time. Well, and I'll just read you the, the last two sentences from his blog post or the main part of it. Uh, he says, what is a stereo net but math disguised as pretty pictures? Perhaps we should give students a choice between the pretty pictures and linear algebra. Then the students will fall in love with stereo nets. Ah, I love it. It's so true. <laughs> but this is where maybe I, this is where I think they need to go hand in hand because yes. the downside of so much teaching is that it is compartmentalized into this one class. And I think that's why math is real hard for people. You know, people are like, oh gosh, like I just want to get through this one class. Guess what? You're going to use linear algebra, but we don't make it clear where, you know what I mean? And so by putting them together like oh this is why i spent so much time in calculus because i need to know this not just doing it in calculus class well and i think we also have a little bit of a failure too of so yeah in linear algebra uh, the math department is generally not great at giving you applications Absolutely and then in, correct. <laughs> and then in class when we're using linear algebra we never point that out to the students it's just some other weird math thing that they have to learn and memorize yes absolutely that's absolutely true I love never say, algebra. hey, you remember those basis functions? Or, hey, you remember those greens functions? Mm-hmm. That's what this is. Yes. Yep. Instead, we're like, just rotate this paper. 
and do some so. calculation. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. I absolutely agree. And it's too bad because it sets, I don't know, it sets student up for failure because they get to my classes, which are all senior level classes, and they're like, what do I do in this class? And I was like, well, this class is putting everything together and they don't get that concept at all. Well, like, and I, here's, here's where I think some programming could come in too, mm-hmm. to the curricula. Because oh. mm-hmm. you can hand wave all you want at saying, oh, well, it's a rotation matrix linear algebra. Or, you know, oh, it's, you know, you plot these two things. If you have to write a program to do it. Yeah, you have to understand it. You do, because you can't just tell the computer, like, oh, rotation this. Yep, exactly. You have to, you know, explain it step by step. So you have to fundamentally understand it. Uh, and I... that's where some of the, <laughs> the things were dredged up this last weekend. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, of, oh, we got to gotta go back to basics on what this thing's doing. Uh, that's really funny, because we have a faculty retreat, and, you know, we're supposed to come up with things we want to talk about, and we're supposed to have three things. I have one thing, because I feel so strongly about it all, um, is the undergrad curriculum, and a long time ago, we got rid of programming, and I think that was, I mean, granted, it was still Fortran 95 in, like, 2005, Wow, you know? yeah. Yeah, and so part of it is that there's not a really good, just intro to programming sort of class there's definitely not a good intro to c plus plus or anything like that um but i thought that was a massively wrong direction to go and so i will be bringing that up (laughs) yeah yeah I think it's an excellent set of points. Yeah, because just the thinking, just like you just said, the thinking involved in programming, no matter what it is, you know, that's the that's the very definition of critical thinking. And that's the skill that everyone says students are lacking. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's a I think it's a really good idea. I totally agree with that. So there you go, everybody. You should make your structure students write their own program <laughs> to confirm their findings from Stereonets. <laughs> Oh, man. I think it's fantastic. I think you could build... Maybe you could build an entire structural geology lab on that. I think you could build an entire programming course on structural geology. You absolutely could. Yes, that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that'd be wonderful. That'd be a great way to teach programming in the geosciences. Here's all this stuff you learned in structure. Here's all this stuff you learned in mineralogy. Now we're going to code it up and give you tools that's I'm, I'm taking notes right now because <laughs> uh, you know we talk about teaching a geostatistics class and who could teach a geostatistics class that's just it seems like that's something that needs to be done but that's really interesting to like focus on an area i wonder if any other schools do that well you know it sounds like a course that uh, lehman geophysical needs to it develop. absolutely does <laughs> It absolutely does. How fun relearning all that mineralogy stuff, though. (laughs) (laughs) Structural, I have no doubts you could put together, but I'm going to laugh my butt off thinking about you, (laughs) thinking about sea axes and all this stuff. I remember some mineralogy. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Till you sit down to program and then you're like, oh, man. (laughs) I have a feeling that doing some Miller Indices stuff would uh, quickly bring it back. (laughs) Painfully, too, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> man, I didn't. I didn't realize I was going to be so 
vocally supportive of the stereo net. <laughs> well, I, I am I am somewhat surprised that we didn't go, you know, as far to the mat as I thought we could on this, <laughs> because we both really have the same viewpoints. Just you yeah. would probably start teaching it with the stereo net and go to the math, and I would probably start teaching it with the math and go to the stereo net. Yeah, which is real funny. This seems like something we should set up and then do some statistics on afterwards. We'll do an A-B test here, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to hijack my seminar when I'm there in September. Fantastic. I'll, I'll just sneak out of the faculty meeting and we'll just get this done. This sounds good. Sounds like a bet that needs to be settled. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, before uh, we go too far down making our plans for the next course... I think it's probably time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Now, this one isn't very fun, <laughs> I'm going to say, but it is interesting. Yeah. So this is the Journal of Emergency Medicine because I, I we get feel a like... lot of things from medical journals. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I feel like that journal is a treasure trove of fun papers. You know, I found several in there. A couple of them were a little bit gruesome. <laughs> to talk about uh, this one is too really <laughs> but had great titles oh my um, goodness. like there was one about a fish hook through somebody's tongue that had a fantastic title oh my gosh uh <laughs> but this one is children and mini magnets an almost fatal attraction by mccormick et al also terrible title for this really scary thing <laughs> um yeah so this is crazy that this is a thing and it, it's exactly that so there was this cluster of these cases at this emergency room all involving kids and magnets weirdest thing ever right and so this is 24 cases over a period of eight weeks and they were really clustered into two groups mm -hmm. yeah and these magnets <laughs> this is coming from children imitating adults and doing things like instead of like a nose piercing, they have these two magnets that are, you know, put one inside your nose and one on the outside. So it looks like you have a piercing as opposed to a real piercing and then them getting stuck. Yeah. And of course they want pretty strong magnets because the magnets have to have strong enough attraction through a thick layer of skin like your nose or your tongue or your ear mm -hmm. yeah, uh, exactly. or cheek to yeah. to hold so they use neodymium magnets which are very very strong yeah so that's terrible um, and these are small magnets which they're, they're seven by four by one millimeters yeah and it's not just noses right uh no there are also <laughs> some below the belt because if this. you have boys involved that's gonna happen too <laughs> and the problem is you get multiple of these magnets together and they're really hard to get apart right the easiest way to get magnets apart is to slide them mm -hmm. uh, perpendicular to their their normal planes of intersection right and so you can't slide them because these little kids are sitting there and you're going to slide them along or whatever you either don't have the room to slide them or it causes too much pain so that resulted in some of these kids had to be put under anesthetic uh to remove the magnets yeah i mean that's you, yeah. you can't slide because you're going to do tissue damage right possibly exactly. pretty significant yes and they said what was really interesting to me is they said that some of the cases 
already had tissue damage because of how strong the magnets were. And yeah. this is where we get into the really bad cases. And these are the kids who tried to imitate tongue piercings and wind up swallowing the magnets. And then, because they swallowed it, they just put another magnet on because they lost that one. And then they swallowed that one. Uh, and they begin to swallow <laughs> multiple magnets. And as it passes through their digest- digestive system, the magnets end up getting attracted when they're in different places in the colon and pinching and perforating the intestine. Right. So perforating it. Like, I had to look up a couple medical words in here. Um <laughs> extra laminally, which meant that it actually was so strong that it punched through. Just like John said, you've got a lot of twisty turns in your intestines and it got sucked through. And so now you have intestinal stuff spilling out into your body cavity because these magnets have made holes through there, pinching off through the different loops. That's unbelievable. Which obviously results in surgery and almost the death of one child. Right, because she had so many. And she had gone in a couple weeks before because she'd been puking. And then she started to have like a lot of bile and weird stuff in her puke. And finally, she admitted to doing this, (laughs) which is just crazy. (laughs) Because they say that they don't usually do. I mean, when somebody's sick like that, they just said, you've got gastroenteritis, whatever, go home, they're not going to do an x-ray on them. And they don't like to do x-ray on kids much anyway, right? And so they said they wouldn't have even done it at all until she finally said that it happened and she had to be rushed into surgery and almost died because of all these perforations in her intestines. And it says that a lot of emergency departments are starting to use a metal detector to try to find ingested metallics. But these are small enough and deep enough in the body that they don't show up on the metal detector. So you have to use a radiation method. Right, yeah. Which, that surprised me with how strong they were that they wouldn't do it. But I guess you probably, yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious. So they say metal detector. I'm thinking it's a relatively low sensitivity thing. Yeah. I mean, we know that we have things like squids, right, that are super high sensitivity. So I'm wondering if you could get a, if this is a large medical problem, if there's a way to get an instrument sensitive enough to do this. Right. Um, They said after this, you know, they finally got the local media to put out statements saying, don't do this, which reminds me of this dumb Tide Pod challenge. And I got all kinds of stuff from my kids' school. You know, talk with your kids about not eating laundry detergent, which is not something I thought I'd ever have to say to my eight-year-old. Yeah. (laughs) And I said, do I have to tell you not to eat laundry detergent? And he said, no, no, I've got this. (laughs) Okay, great. But some kids still do. It's crazy how this whole group thing is so strong with children, which is clearly what was happening here with this cluster of um, magnetic related injuries. Well, and it came back to somebody was selling them at school for a penny each, which they noticed (laughs) below market value. (laughs) worst part of the paper why would you why would you even put that in here yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean come on (laughs) price is less than they're worth commercially thanks appreciate that (laughs) yeah this is a weird one but i imagine we'll be seeing a lot more from the turtle of emergency medicine 
Oh yes, I have I have a list now of some great titles from them. So. <laughs> All right, excellent. Uh, but if you have your very own fun paper or you've done a stereo net and would like to share it with us, and you can <laughs> share a picture on Twitter or something, uh, or you have your very own magnet story, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Right. We haven't had a voice message in a long time. Send us one of those. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, show us your stereo nets on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And if you want to get even nerdier, come over to the Software Underground on the Slack channel, Don't Panic, and we will be there. And as always, thanks to our Patreon supporters for supporting us. If you would like to do that, um, patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.